Um, my name is Sarah New. I've been coming to Forefriend for about almost four years, um, which is a lot. And I lead a small group here in Brooklyn Heights. Best small group. Um, it's great to see so many new people here. If you, by the way, found this uh, church through a website called Church Clarity, I'd like to talk to you. I'm actually one of the co-founders. Um, but I want to start with the, the icebreaker question was about how many of you have been following the U.S. women's national team? Um, I've been like personally very obsessed. I've turned into a complete groupie, as anyone who's living with me can testify. Um, and one of the interesting things that I've noticed come up in the social media conversation, I know someone's just wearing a jersey, which I was very excited to see. Uh, you don't have to identify yourself, I'll just find you. Um, <laughs> it's totally okay, not creepy. Um, the, one of the interesting conversations that came up on social media was, uh, why is it that we call it the men's game, the World Cup, and the women's game, the women's World Cup? And so, you know, it kind of implies that men are the default and then women are the derivative or the alternative. And when I read that, I, I rest, well, I say that, and then I also started thinking about um, the first year I moved to America. I was about 10 years old and my father was very interested in getting us to play American team sports. And so that meant no soccer because we played that in Asia. Um, it was part of like, you know, becoming American. And so it's football or baseball. And because they cared about longevity of our brain cells so we could go to good colleges, it just meant baseball. Um, and I was actually kind of excited to play baseball because in, in Malaysia we played this ver British version called Rounders. Is anyone familiar with it? Um, it's like, I don't know, it's very fun. And I, I think, you know, baseball was what I saw on the television. It was in the, you know, baseball player card things. It was the, I remember reading this like baseball books when I was 10 or 11. And I think I knew softball existed, like it was something that girls played. But it just seemed to me like a weirder version of baseball. You know, the, the pitch is really different, kind of funky. The ball's bigger, so it seems like it's like an easier version. And so I was very set that I wanted to play baseball. So my parents called, can she come to the tryout? She's a girl. They're like, fine. Uh, so I show up and you know, keep in mind that I've never played really baseball in my life. No one in my family knows how to, so I had no training. And I was this breakout star in the tryouts. Um, just kidding, I was the worst player. Uh, like, of course, <laughs> you guys actually believe that. So honored. Um, like when I went up to bat, I like stood on the home plate because I didn't know where you're supposed to stand relative to where the pitch was coming in. And I was so bad that the coaches were like, you know, it's your first time playing, you're a girl, why don't you just play softball? So I had no choice, so I was like, okay, I'll do softball. And, and, but in my head, I kind of internalized the message as, well, because you're not good enough to play baseball, that's why you have to play softball. And, oh, that's picture me. Uh, I think that's probably the darkest I've been. Since then, it's just been books and nerdiness. Um, but, um, in any case, I really love soft, my softball team. I really, actually, it's really a sport that in some ways introduced me to America and helped me become, in some ways, feel like I belong to a unit other than my family in this country. Um, and one of the first things that I learned in practice was how to swing a bat. So if you don't know how the sport plays, it's kind of like wooden stick thing, sometimes metal, and then someone throws the ball and you're supposed to like hit it. Um, and you know, when I first learned, I was like, all right, I can do it, just like follow what other people are doing, gotta bend your knees, you know, square your shoulders, twist your hips. And I was you know, doing pretty well, and I was like, okay, I can do this. And the coach comes up to me and says, you know, Sarah, you're left-handed, so why don't you swing this way? That's why I left you swing. And I said, don't tell me what to do, <laughs> you know? This is how I wanna swing. I can swing right-handed like everyone else, so I wanna prove to you that I can do it. 
And, you know, I actually could swing right-handed. I'm a little bit ambidextrous. But I think really I felt I didn't want to stand out, if that makes sense, more than I already did. I already had a very thick kind of Malaysian accent. Um, softball is a very white sport. Um, most body types that are good for softball are very different from my body type. Um, and I, I think I just became this very stubborn, independent, conformist person. Like, it's just um, really intent on conforming, um, no matter what you said. And obviously, I re really regret that decision in part because my left hand is obviously stronger, and who knew that left-handed batteries are actually a real big asset to teams? Um, <laughs> I just wish the coach told me that. Um, I don't know what I was thinking, but when I think about that decision, I think to myself, like, goodness, how many, how many decisions have I made because I was trying to prove I was good enough to do something by a standard that someone else set, maybe an invisible group of people, mostly probably white men, and instead of thinking about what it is that actually were my natural strength, like what I actually wanted to do. It's almost like the easiest way to get me to do something is to put like a hurdle or a challenge, and I'll focus all my energy and figure out how to jump over it, instead of saying, actually, I'm just gonna take a left. Like, why, why am I going here? Um, and I think it's a challenge that most of us, I think, deal with. We're surrounded by all these kind of hurdles or standards that we're expected to emulate, or we're supposed to feel ashamed if we don't emulate. They're influenced by our families, our cultures, um, capitalism, race, gender, sexuality. And the Bible also has lots of standards, uh, especially when it comes to um, gender and sex. Now, probably the most explicit passage that delves into this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So, Here's the verse, I'm gonna kind of walk you through it verse by verse. So Paul, I think, is presumed to be the author of this one. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. So this is hierarchy, God at top, Christ, Christ the head of men, and then husbands ahead of wives. And then he says, any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is the one and same thing as having her head shaved. So Paul's really against men praying with anything covering their heads. It has to be exposed. But it's also really against women praying with nothing covering their heads. Why? So he elaborates. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. Look, yeah, I guess that, so what he has, the picture is painting is God's the best, men's reflection of God, women's reflection of men. The column is like a vertical continuum, so to speak. And he continues in case this point wasn't clear enough. Indeed, man was not made from women, but woman from men, referencing Genesis chapter two, where God creates Eve from the rib of Adam. Neither was man created for the sake of women, but woman for the sake of men. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. So this is the covering on the head. No one really knows what because of the angels means. It just seems like a throwaway phrase. But if someone does know, please let me know. I mean, I think as you, these verses are pretty harsh. It's probably maybe the most misogynistic passage in the Bible. Um, and it's hard to kind of let it sit with this and kind of wrestle with it and figure out what to do. Um, but so I'm gonna hopefully give you some tools to kind of figure out how to make sense of passages like this one. Um, that have to do particularly with men and women. So let's understand the passage historically first. So in modern society, particularly Western society today, we believe in something we call the sexual binary. So women and men, male, female. And obviously awareness of intersex people is on the rise, but most people I think hold to some form of uh, binary. So, and the narrative goes is that, you know, these two sexes are engaged in sort of like a battle. 
you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and we have this like planetary cosmological battle. And, um, and then if you grew up in conservative Christianity, this binary is used to justify lots of things. You know, these are only two sexes, you cannot be anything else, this is what you're born in, you can't change. Or, you know, this is why men and women are perfect for each other, because they're so different, and only through marriage and love can they unite and complement one another. And this homosexuality is kind of narcissistic, because you're like loving a version of yourself, if that makes sense. Um, is it hopefully familiar with some people. If not, thank God you didn't go through them. Um, <laughs> So this view in which there are two sexes kind of then influences how we interpret the Bible. And you look at, okay, what does the Bible say about men? What does the Bible say about women? Oh, I'm supposed to slow down when I talk. I'm sorry. Okay. What's, okay. But <laughs> I get very excited. Um, but that is not necessarily how people understood sex um, sort of back then. So over the past few decades, uh, classicists and academics have been proposing a theory that before the 1700s, roughly, there was a belief there was only one sex men, and everyone else was just an inferior version of men. So in the next bit, I'm gonna use a lot of words about body parts, that if you have children, you don't want them to learn too much about human anatomy, maybe like cover their ears, not super sure, I was told to give that disclaimer. And I'm also gonna give another disclaimer that I'm gonna use the phrase men's bodies and women's bodies a lot as a kind of shorthand. I wanna be clear that not all women have what I'm going to be referring to as women's bodies and not all men have what I'm gonna be referring to as men's bodies. If, you know, just to be super clear, if you identify as a woman or identify as a man, no matter what body you have, you have a woman's body or you have a men's body. Is that clear? Just as a yeah. point. Okay, great. So to continue, before roughly the 1700s, uh, men's and women's bodies, like I said, with quotes, were seen as basically the same, except women had more imperfections. So, you know, boobs are bigger, hips are wider, brains are smaller. It was a new, <laughs> they like measured it, the skulls and stuff. Um, it was even believed that women had all the same reproductive organs as men, except they were inside of the bodies. So like wombs and vaginas were kind of like inverted penises, if that makes sense. Well, and the uterus was basically like a scrotum, but inside, um, containing the testicles. Um, and also it was believed that women ejaculated sperm during sex, except it was like less foamy. Um, so this is a quote from Galen, a Greek physician and surgeon. You're allowed to laugh, by the way, it's all good. Uh, 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 I don't have the slide up, but I'll just read it quickly. Turn out with the woman's body, turn inward, so to speak, and fold double the man's body, and you will find the same in both in every respect. Think first of the man's external genitalia turned in and extended inward between the rectum and the bladder. If this should happen, the scrotum would necessarily take the place of the uterus. The test is lying outside next to it on either side. You fast forward to the Renaissance, you'll find anatomical paintings that depict how a woman is just a man turned inside out. They would have women's and men's organs uh, depicted side by side to show how similar they were to one another. And one of the main reasons it was thought that uh, men's and women's bodies were like slightly different is because men had more heat or fire within them. So women's bodies, because they were colder, couldn't push out the internal organs. And also mean that's why the sperm was less foamy, because not heat to like, foam it up. Um, <laughs> And the, in the medieval mind, all, you guys laugh more than the first service, so. Um, so in a medieval worldview, all elements, all matter, like you know, plants, animals, humans, were composed of four elements, earth, air, fire, water. So kind of like airbender with less fighting. So air, fire, air and 
and fire were seen as masculine and earth and water seen as feminine. So sexual differences were about how much of each element you had in your body. So if you had more air and fire, you were more masculine, that's more perfect. And if you had more earth and water, you're more uh, less masculine, not necessarily feminine, less masculine, and more imperfect. So not only were uh, men literally hotter, but they were also seen as more rational, kind of more self-controlled, but active partner. And women were seen as more intuitive, or emotional, uh, passive, and cold. And Thomas Aquinas, uh, one of the sort of great Catholic church fathers in the Middle Ages, writes, for instance, about how women are misbegotten and defective babies, because the perfect babies are masculine. And he speculates that perhaps what causes babies to become feminine is the presence of a south wind, which tends to be moist, um, this like changing the sex of the baby um, during childbirth. So academics describe this model of sex as the one sex theory, the idea that there's a single continuum of sex ordered from you know, most masculine to least masculine. Now, this may seem kind of retrograde, a little oppressive, but one of the nice things about this model I kind of like is that it has a more fluid understanding of gender. Because it boils down to just what elements you have in your body, and people have varying elements, in some ways the line between masculine and less masculine or feminine is a lot more blurry than the modern scientific understanding we have today, where you're like, this is it, this is your category, and that's it. Um, and so the difference between men and women were really a difference in degree, not in kind. And so it was totally normal in that way to have manly women or womanly men. That was like not confusing. That was like, all right, that makes sense. You have a little more fire in your belly. Um, so once you grasp this kind of one sex model, a lot of biblical passages kind of take on new meaning. So you know, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that God is there and man is a reflection of God and woman is a reflection of man, you see the kind of one sex continuum operating. Um, it's all ordered along the same axis, they're just reflecting versions of each other. And then when Augustine, for instance, is writing his commentary on 1 Corinthians 11, he says, you know, the reason why women have to cover their heads and men have to leave their heads bare is because it indicates that women's reason has focused on temporal earthly things, whereas men's have to expose their head because that's the, their reason or the image of God has to be exposed, which indicates they're meant to behold eternal, kind of abstract, elevated, above the earth things. So this one sex theory also sheds new light on passages like Genesis 2, where, as I mentioned before, Eve is not created from the dust and God's breath like Adam is. You know, Adam is sleeping, God takes a rib and then kind of forms Eve, and then Adam wakes up and he sees, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You can interpret that in many ways, but one way to interpret that is, oh, a version of me. You know, an extension of who I am. So you can see this one sex model obviously does not like completely die in the late Middle Ages. You see, see remnants of it today. I mentioned earlier on with the World Cup versus the Women's World Cup, ways in which you treat men as a standard and women are kind of folded into that or a deviation from that. But think also of how when we say you guys, we, it's referring to men technically, but we know that women are technically included in it, that sort of subsumed into it. Or how um, the Bible in some translations talks about, you know, God came to save mankind. Um, and we know it means men and women and everyone else, but the assumption is that men are the default and everyone else is just kind of subsumed into them. Is that people kind of tracking? Okay. So given all of that, I'm going to return to 1 Corinthians 11, except I'm going to read the two verses that follow from the passage I previously read. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of men, 
or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, but all things come from God. So Paul's making a different turn here. You can tell when he uses the word nevertheless, he's pivoting a little bit. And instead of painting the picture of the vertical continuum we've been used to, he paints instead a kind of circle in which women and men are interdependent because men are birthed from women, like through childbirthing process, and women are made from men through the Adam's rib thing, the jig. Um, and both are responsible for the other's existence, although obviously in the middle of the circle is a true creator, which is God. And it's a kind of beautiful image. Um, and I could, I guess, end the sermon there and be like, oh, and this is how Christianity is progressive. But it, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of hard to make the case that this two verses kind of balance out everything else he just said. Um, I don't know if we're really getting like a net positive outcome here. And the, the framework, I think if we were to be intellectual honest, um, the framework I like is this uh, framework by a Franciscan priest named Father Richard Rohr, who in his book, Things Hidden in Scripture, talks about text in travail. Travail, I think, is kind of like a fancy word, just like a nice alliteration. Um, but it just means like painful, laborious effort. And so texts like these, according to Rohr, and I also agree, are kind of laboriously struggling with the cultural norms of their day and kind of trying to reach towards something that is true and good and divine. But sometimes that looks like taking three steps back and then one step forward. Or you take one step back and then three steps forward. And it makes the Bible like very frustrating because there's so much good in it, but then it's like wrapped up with all this like weird stuff that you wish like wasn't there. But then how do you like, do you, are you supposed to just, like take what you like? What are you supposed to do? How do you make sense of this movement that you see in scripture? And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here in this passage. Because Paul is, is very much recapitulating the cultural norms of his day, but he is taking it a step forward that we have to acknowledge. So you can think of it like this. Um, just kind of follow my hands because I didn't do the slides. So Paul is moving, you could say, from point A to point B. So there's A and there's B. So one way to read this is to say, like, where Paul goes, point B, we cannot go further. Like, this is it. So you, that's how you get, you know, not only believes that women have submit to men because they're inferior, what have you, but also if you check out this website called headcoveringmovement.com, it's like a movement to bring back head covering for women in churches and church spaces. And they pull from 1 Corinthians 11, it's like really, really, really clear, this is the literal word of God, you can't really deviate from it. Um, which is a fun like website to send to like conservative friends and family. Um, <laughs> you believe that? Why not head covering? Um, <laughs> Hopefully they don't say, oh yeah, that too. But, um, so, but the other way to read like point A to point B thing is to not just focus on the line, but to focus on the slope. You know, like rise over run. The, the rate of change that Paul is introducing. Because if we focus on the slope, maybe we can keep the slope and just keep extending that line in a way that meets us where we are today when we have sort of better understanding of science, understanding that you know, women can think abstract thoughts, um, and so on. So I guess what I'm saying is there are two ways to be biblical. One to focus on a line, the other one to focus on the slope. So my question is, what is inspiring Paul to make this change? You know, it's not radical change, but it's something. And maybe it's about the kind of explosion of women leaders in the church. I mean, yes, there are a lot of passages that say like, women have to be quiet, stop talking so much, blah, blah, blah. But they're only saying that because women are talking so much, they're like really leading, and there's some like, you have to impose some rule and order. And I think after, um, in the early church, there is this kind of breaking through of gender norms that is, that is unusual and unsettles people. And maybe that's related to how prominently women pr figure in Jesus' ministry. Now, I want to be clear, Jesus never said, you know, women, men, everyone, you're all equal. Um, he had 12 disciples, they're all men. He 
for the most part, seem to occupy a masculine body. Um, but given that, I think he did introduce, in a sort of subtle way, a pretty fundamental shift in uh, particularly the classical understanding of gender. So as a reminder, the Greco-Roman world was very hyper-masculine. The, the one sex theory I talked about, I mostly focus on medieval ages, but really you can trace it back to, you know, Galen was second century AD. You can trace it back all the way to 300 BC. Um, and in this model, men, elite men specifically, were supposed to be super self-controlled and in charge. They, in sex, for instance, um, they, were they were only allowed to have a penetrating position. They could not be penetrated by someone else. And if you were penetrated, you could not yet to be a slave, a woman, or a barbarian. You were not allowed to be sort of a Roman citizen. If not, it was like super, super shameful. And so here's a uh, picture of a sculptural relief in, in Turkey of a Roman soldier basically raping a penetrating woman from behind. The soldier's name is Claudius, and the woman is Britannia. Now, Britannia refers to what we now refer to as the United Kingdom. And Claudius is Emperor Claudius, who conquered the United Kingdom of Britannia in 43 AD. And this relief is dated around 45 AD. So, this is basically how the Roman world saw other nations that they conquered. That they were soft, they were women, they were penetrated, and the Roman world was sort of manly, virtuous, self-disciplined, and they penetrated others. So, just as a reminder, this is a version of the 163. You have elite men on the top, and they have women, children, slaves, barbarians at the bottom. Active, passive, soft, hard, you know, people who rule and people who submit to those who rule. And, um, I can get more into this, it's kind of fun in Plato's Republic, but um, so amidst this kind of gender structure, what does Jesus do? Jesus does a bunch of stuff. He holds up a child and says, you have to be like one of these to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be, in some ways, not men. He heals a servant by a Roman centurion. He lets himself be touched by a ritually unclean woman. He is anointed by a woman with perfume. He is hosted by a woman in her home. Martha. His burial is prepared by a woman. Women are the first people to witness the resurrection. He washes the feet of his disciples and act that servants do. He says stuff like, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, probably meaning Romans, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So given what we know over the Roman kind of model of gender, you can kind of interpret what he's saying to mean, if you want to be great, you have to be at the bottom. You have to set aside how you've defined, society has defined your masculinity. You have to unman yourself in a very kind of literal way. Um, and, and to the point where, this is kind of a side note, but in some of the really ascetic sort of early church um, desert fathers, they would castrate themselves. Um, to like fully embody the idea that they have transcended their bodies and particularly their sex. I'm not really recommending that, but I'm just saying like this is <laughs> one of the conclusions you could draw. Um, and, and in some ways, in a more like abstract sense, Jesus is saying this is a standard that people are supposed to emulate or feel shame if they don't emulate. And I'm telling you, these are the new roles I'm creating. This is a new identity structure I'm creating. This is what it means to follow me. And this stuff. You know, makes me really like Jesus. He's a pretty cool person. But I haven't gotten to the best part. So around the 1400s, um, a really interesting artistic tradition arises that kind of happens concurrently with an increasing valuation of motherhood thanks to the Virgin Mary. Um, not an increasing valuation of women, just of motherhood, just to be clear. 
So you see this tradition arising that depicts Jesus in very feminine, almost motherly ways. So as context is important to you, remember, you guys know what happens with the wound on Jesus' side when he's on the cross. So basically what happens is he's like hanging, like maybe about to die, and the Roman um, dude takes a spear and pierces his side, and then water and blood come out. Um, the Bible's very clear about this, water and blood, not just blood, which is kind of strange. And a lot of commentary, like, why is it that water and blood come out? Um, so keep that in mind as I show you the series of paintings. So this painting here is a painting of Jesus showing his wounds to a nun and feeding her the Eucharist of the communion. Um, literally, it seems like feeding her his flesh, his wound in the cross. And the position of the wound is really close to his nipple, the way almost a mother might breastfeed her child. Here's another slide of Jesus feeding the blood of the Eucharist from his wounds into the cup that we'll take in a little bit. Once again, the wound is really close to his nipple, almost like breast milk coming out. And here's another slide of Jesus with the wound that looks uh, a little strange, because if you look closely, it looks like two lips almost on his chest. And basically what starts happening is the artists are depicting his wound as a vulva, the lips of a vagina. And you see it all over a limited manuscript, just kind of like free-floating vaginas of Jesus, um, just chilling you know, by the cross, by certain texts. Um, and I'm, this particular painting is in the Morgan Library, I believe, so you can look, you can look at it more closely yourself. And the caption below reads, after Christ's death, this wound miraculously issued both water and blood when his body was pierced. Theologically, the church was thought to have been born from this wound. The water had baptismal significance, you know, baptizing water, and the blood was, of course, the Eucharist, which is a fancy way of saying communion, or a Catholic way. So you see that this wound is supposed to be the site of birth for the church. Out of this wound comes water and blood. And I think, I'm not a doctor, but the two times in which water and blood both come from our bodies are menstruation and childbirth. So you have this beautiful image of Christ birthing the church from his wounds, or as feeding on Jesus like babies from his nipples, uh, like feeding from our mothers. And it's, I think it's really beautiful. And I, what I find even more kind of stunning is that these artists lived in a time in which masculinity was a standard of perfection. Yet they chose to depict a part of Jesus' bodies after imperfect, what was seen as imperfect bodies. Nobody knows exactly why, you know. But perhaps what they wanted out of Jesus was a more nurturing, motherly presence. Maybe they were thinking that when Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, how long to gather you, like a mother hen gathers chicks under her wings. And so perhaps they felt empowered as you know, the body of Christ to create new meaning from his body in a way that met what they needed. And I think as the, as the body of Christ today, we can do the same. Um, after this, I'm going to lead us into uh, introduce and transition us in the time of communion. I think the ushers and musicians can start coming up. And there are going to be people kind of standing here and here holding crackers, and grape juice symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus that we are invited to eat and consume and feed on. And maybe when you're standing up and getting in line, you'll feel inspired like the artist to meditate on Jesus as a mother, feeding, sustaining you. Maybe that's not a helpful image for you today, but whatever meaning or sustenance you need from Jesus' body, hope you have permission to make it. So, invite you all to, you know, at some point, get in line. 
Um, regardless of, I think we, our community was really open to all, there's no belief, behavior, identity requirements, um, to come and partake of the blood and body of Jesus Christ, who has shown us through their life and death the path of life. For from the blood and the water, we have new life.